Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture. Thanks for joining me. I got a friend of show returning as this week's guest. His name is Andy Ambriel of BioSteward Farms. You might recall him. Uh, in the write-up, I'll tell you which episodes he's on because, to be honest with you, I don't remember right now. He's been on, he was in one of my first 10 episodes. Uh, he's an organic farmer farms 1400 organically certified acres of uh, various crops he's going to tell you all about that but you already know that you can go back and listen to his actual operation today he's going to join me to talk about issues stuff that is happening in the business from his perspective we're going to talk about organic versus conventional we're going to talk about the pluses and the minuses of both we're going to talk about things in the marketplace things that you see when you're a 31 year old organic farmer in indiana and things that i see from traveling around these 50 states as well as the canadian provinces andy ambriel welcome to the business of agriculture yeah, thanks for having me back for the hat trick. All right. So it's a third time. You've been here before. Uh, real quickly, uh, to give the introduction, what did I miss? I think you pretty much nailed it. Uh, I'm farm organic, uh, 1,400 acres, so a little, little bit more than your backyard garden. But uh, really enjoy it and uh, enjoy being on the show. Well, I appreciate you being here. So if you are a big fan of this show, you might also check out my Do Business Better podcast. In fact, Andy is a, a guest on that uh, show. We're talking about the entrepreneurial nature of what he does. What you didn't hear so far in this introduction is that Andy started out as a nine-year-old kid. He rented two acres from his parents and stuck out a pumpkin patch. And then he had a roadside stand. He sold pumpkins. I know they're actually called pumpkins, but I always think it's funnier calling them pumpkins. Anyway, he's been at it since he was nine years old. You've been in production agriculture since you were nine. Yep, and probably uh, if you want to count forced slave labor even before that. Yeah, when you were like six years old, <laughs> loading hogs? Oh, probably five, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yep, yeah. ever since I was uh, big enough to follow Dad around and uh, – get told whatever he thought I could do. Yeah, so. and then they put me on a tractor. I think I was eight. I'm, I would say I was eight. I know I was eight when I started feeding the calves and taking care of the bedding, the calf pens, and doing all that when I was eight. And I believe it was about seven or eight when they put me on a tractor as the operator. So you and I have that in common. All right, so you keep up. Um, you see stuff as I see stuff, and you keep up. You're a reader. You're an observer. We're going to cover topics, things that we see in agriculture. And we're going to begin with the differences between organic and conventional you're not an organic person because you're the disciple you're not the one that's out here trying to um, evangelize everybody on this business you got in for a very simple reason it was a business reason talk us about that yeah absolutely um you know young guy starting out uh with you know nothing but a dream uh organic appealed to me uh from you know a lot of the the taking care of your land, uh, adding organic matter, uh, farming without the use of a lot of the, uh, synthetics and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we have a business to run and that was the, the best way on a smaller limited amount of acres, uh, to make a living. Yeah. For you, it was about, uh, not well capitalized and you get a premium. So you're thinking, okay, I've got less acres. I don't have a million dollars worth of capital behind me. Uh, and so what can I do that I can get better returns for less, uh, input? Yep, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more uh, labor that goes into organic with multiple passes and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, a young guy starting out uh, with 50 acres, 
I got all the time in the world to make as many passes and do as many things as I need to do, uh, where the guy farming 10,000 acres uh, really doesn't have time to do that. All right. So you and I met, uh, even though you only live not too far from me and your farm is actually within the same county as mine, we met on social media. You had been at a gig where I was uh, talking, a speaking engagement, I guess, or something when I was uh, going at it. Your company, Bio Steward Farms, I mistakenly thought was a uh, an Ontario-based uh, organic farmer because at that time there was some Ontario organic person that was all over me, uh, just fighting with me every day uh, on social media. So you've brought me into the fold a little bit. I was never anti-organic, only about the way organic has a pretty powerful, shall we say, public relations arm um, where there are groups that are funded and also get fundraising to go out and demonize conventional agriculture. That's the problem with organic from my standpoint. Do you see any problems with organic from your standpoint being in the business? Yeah, and I think a lot of that, uh, the small vocal minority, uh, sometimes you have to take with a grain of salt. And just because an organization has organic in their name doesn't necessarily mean that somehow they represent the organic industry as a whole or represent organic farmers or anything else like that. Uh, A lot of those organizations, uh, they have some legitimate uh, things to point out and, you know, are trying to address some legitimate problems. But at the same time, the way they go about it and uh, some of their tactics and, uh, you know, sometimes they just overblow uh, a lot of a lot of things that uh, aren't necessarily as big a deal as what they want to make it just so they can garner attention um, and try to get donations and numbers and things like that. I think it's important for our listeners to understand, while I am absolutely a proponent of all agriculture, I'm a proponent of modern agriculture, and modern does not mean anti-organic. Andy, while he might have bristled with some of my statements, and I've bristled with some of his statements over the years, is actually sitting in my granary beef office right now, and we're going to have beers after this recording. Just so you understand, we all get along. Because I think any way you can earn a living in agriculture, because it's a business, any way you can make a living. If you're selling organically raised, petted by your daughter, blessed by a rabbi, uh, purebred Scottish Highland steers in Montana, and selling them on the Internet, that's fantastic for you. When it is a business... That means that there's going to be, in my opinion, a merging of the methods. I see some of organic coming to conventional because it's already happened. Is anything about conventional going to come to organic? Oh, right now there's a debate on uh, allowing some of these uh, second-generation GMOs to come in. Um, I don't think that's getting much traction. Uh, The biggest thing... To to actually be certified. To actually be certified, yeah. Um, The biggest thing that conventional agriculture has blessed with organic is uh, the equipment, the modern equipment, um, as well as a lot of the GPS guidance and things like that, uh, where we can do a lot better job of cultivation, a lot better job of uh, precision and things like that, uh, where, you know, Grandpa with his two-row cultivator uh, couldn't really do that. Got it. So you're saying who gave that to who? Organic gave that to conventional? No, I'm saying conventional blessed that with organic uh, because, you know, the small amount of uh, organic acres probably couldn't pay for that you know technology uh because it was made for the the 10,000 acre farmer originally okay so you got small stuff from them they gave you what they, they, gave, you, they gave you the equipment you gave them the equipment they gave you the technology they, they gave, you gave the us technology. The, the the technology and the equipment to do what we need to do 
Okay. All right. What does organic get right that conventional gets wrong? Um, Organic gets right that our soil is our number one resource, uh, that we should care for our soil, that um, we should do everything we can to build it up, to increase the life in the soil, uh, to increase the organic matter, um, and not apply or do anything that's going to hurt our soil. Because at the end of the day, you take the name organic, um, it means life, it means carbon. So uh, we need to focus on getting life and carbon uh, into our soil. I agree with you that organic emphasizes the soil. I don't know that conventional farming doesn't doesn't appreciate it, but I don't think that they appreciate it as much as they should you know i'm a soil guy i was in soil judging and ffa i was all about that myself so what's conventional doing wrong with the soil uh they are for the largest part ignoring the biological aspect of the soil um the chemistry they get right the uh physics they get right uh but more and more um the biology um is starting to play more of a role but especially in the past 20 years, um, biology and conventional agriculture has been ignored. Okay. So meaning that you don't, you don't think that in, you say 20 years, it could have been 40, it could have yeah. been 50. Remember I grew up a little older than you. I'm 20 years <laughs> older than you. I'd say that in the seventies, we probably were doing a bad job of that left alone. Does the soil, does the soil, uh, need all that we're doing in conventional? I say, no, I say we till it too much. Toil breaks. So tillage breaks down soil structure. Uh, but you guys till a lot and can and organic. Yeah, and that's the thing. Tillage is a, a pretty broad term. Uh, you know, what are we doing? Are we tilling two or three inches deep and incorporating uh, 10 tons of biomass of cover crop? Or are we tilling, you know, 16 inches deep uh, in the fall, letting the soil be bare all winter long for, you know, five or six months, and then working it a couple more times in the spring? You know, all those things are tillage, um, but biologically those two different things have um, a very different impact on the soil. What's the most devastating? To me, it's fall tillage. I believe that we're going to look back someday, and I say this all the time, we're going to look back someday, Andy, at fall tillage the way you and I would look at 300 years ago, they used leeches for health care, for medical treatment. Yeah, yep. And that's, you know, when we talk about this, you know, different climates and different things all have their their, uh, needs. But uh, for the most part, where the vast majority of conventional farmland, uh, the combines followed with a deep ripper and that ground sits bare for six months out of the year, um, it really has some, some negative effects. I was in Minnesota two years ago. I was up there for some events, and it was uh, first week of December, and I'm driving about two and a half hours between events from Minneapolis over to almost to Sioux Falls. And I'd say that more than half of the properties were completely plowed up, tilled up. Fall, okay, they don't use moldboard plows anymore, but it's just not a whole hell of a lot better in my opinion. And I think it's because that ground is really dark. And it's cold, cold, cold up there. And they have this, they have learned, if you do this, why then in the spring, that, that solar power starts uh, heating that ground up. You can get out there in April and plant corn in Minneapolis, or I'm sorry, in Southern Minnesota. Now I'm thinking, well, also, there was about, uh, you know, my soil judging side comes in four to 12% slope on some of those fields. That means that for six months, maybe more, you're letting that be susceptible to the wind and the rain and the snow and the blow and the erosive uh, nature of that. I just can't imagine why you would spend six to $10,000 an acre for land and then tear it up like that so it can be blown away. 
I don't know either, but uh, I guess there's lots of ways to farm, but uh, especially up there where, you know, they're frozen completely solid with a foot of snow most of the winter, um, you don't have some of the negative effects, but around in our area, you definitely see, uh, especially those, those big spring rains, uh, you see a lot of erosion um, and a lot of negativity from that. Yeah. All right. So fall tillage is the worst. You're defending the tillage that organic does. Now, it still does open up the ground, and it still does beat up the soil. Oh, absolutely. But uh, And that's the thing. Tillage is a tool, so there's there's lots of ways to use that tool. Uh, you know, you can use it in a positive way, or you can use it in a negative way. Um, you know, there's some organic guys that I know that beat their ground with, in my opinion, is way too much tillage. Um, and then, you know, there's others that uh, use use tillage as... as uh, a tool to accomplish a, a certain task. Um, you know, for instance, weed control, uh, there aren't really any chemical herbicides or anything to use in organic. So we do have to mechanically, uh, terminate the weeds. So, um, you know, that's just one of the things that, uh, we can do. Um, and there's a lot of things such as cover crops, uh, that help to negate or help to buffer some of the negative effects of tillage. You uh, alluded to chemical usage. All right. So uh, I'm a big fan of chemicals around my farm. I don't overuse them, but I use them as a tool. I use them because it makes my life easier. You can't do some of that with organic, uh, but you can use some chemicals. What do you use in your farming on your property? What chemicals are used? Uh, Really, as far as uh, what would be considered chemicals, really nothing. Uh, There are a few... Um, I've experimented with, I guess you could say would be a fungicide that is actually the extract um, of a plant um, would probably be the closest thing that I've used as a chemical. Um, As far as herbicides and things like that, um, there's really not a whole lot out there. And what is offered is very expensive and doesn't work very well. So it just on a broad acre uh, farm, it just there's really no options out there. So... All right. So uh, one thing that you turned me on to was regenerative agriculture. You gave me the link to a book, and I'm listening to it. I'm about completely done with it. But before we get into regenerative, the biggest component of regenerative is use of cover crops. I believe that, again, not only right there with tillage is like leeches, but uh, leaving ground bare is just about as bad. Yeah, yep. I mean, the ground... Ground is made to grow things. Uh, if you don't believe me, just leave a, a spot of ground bare and something's going to grow there, which is probably going to be weeds. Yeah, um, there, there's no question. If not treated with a herbicide, the ground wants to be growing things. Even your gravel driveway Absolutely. grows stuff. So, yep. <laughs> uh, so it's natural. And so leaving land barren. Now, I hear these uh, people that say, well, you know, I can't put a cover crop in because I'm in North Dakota and my crops came off in, uh, you know, into November. I can't, I don't have time to do that. The season doesn't work for me. I said, well, maybe you shouldn't be growing corn in North Dakota anyhow. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have to, uh, our climate, uh, we have to take that into account. What crops should we be growing? What works in our ecosystem? Um, you know, just because corn and soybeans are the easiest uh, and there's an elevator right down the road that'll take them, 
maybe you shouldn't be growing them on your farm. You know, there are other options. You know, 40 years ago, we weren't growing corn and soybeans in North Dakota and northern Minnesota. They'll claim it's because of climate change. I'll say there's a little teeny bit of that. There's also a bigger component of it. Uh, we bred the hell out of and engineered the hell out of those crops so that they could be growing up there so they could make more money. Yep. Um, so the uh, the cover crop thing, you got 1,400 acres. Is there a cover crop on every one of those acres going into winter? Every acre every year. Yep. Every single acre every that acre, you have every year. has something on it. Living root as close to 365 days a year as possible. Okay. It keeps it from blowing away. It keeps from washing away. It also improves water infiltration. Yep. And uh, it also helps to cycle nutrients. Okay. Uh, in our area, it's, it's a large issue. We've had uh, some problems with excess nutrients getting in our reservoir and causing some algae blooms and things like that. So do you think that we're going to see a time where cover crops are uh, on 90% of the acres? Um. I don't think it'll get that high without legislation. Um, we've got... The marketplace uh, won't do it just because they think it makes sense. I would, because I'm looking at it saying, why would that ground be sitting there from October 12th when uh, the soybeans come off, let's say, until May 15th? And you're talking again. There's seven months. Yeah, but from an outsider looking in, Damien, you know, it, it might seem obvious, but you're not a farmer with a one or two year contract on that land that doesn't have enough time to get an ROI out of that cover crop. Yeah, so it happens on owned acres. It may not happen on leased acres. Yeah, yep. And that's what uh, you're seeing a lot more adoption probably on owned acres as well. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of farmland is leased uh, with shorter terms. And frankly, uh, a lot of guys, it's not even on their radar as part of their farming system. And and the person that owns it, that lives in Chicago, that inherited it from grandpa, just looks at what the cash rent check looks like, and they don't think, what's the what's this going to do from a degradation of value 10, 20, 30 years from now? Yep, but there is there is a small growing amount of, of uh, concern, especially not necessarily on uh, the guy that's retired and is now renting out his farm, but that second, maybe third generation, um, people that inherit the land, uh, they do have a little bit more concern. Um, some, some, some they're, they're, yep. they're, they're stayed knowledgeable. If they stayed yep. knowledgeable, then yes, I agree with you. Yep. Uh, all right. So cover crops, then, uh, soil abuse. What besides tillage or over tillage or fall tillage and lack of cover crops? Where else are we screwing up the soil? You talked a lot about soil biology. What am I missing besides those things? Uh, another another big thing in regenerative ag is uh, diversity. Um, you know, here in the Midwest, we call diversity corn and soybeans. You know, that's <laughs> that's diversity. And really, yeah, one's a grass, one's a legume, but at the same time, they're both planted in the spring, harvested in the fall. It's you you struggle with the same weeds. It's in my opinion, that's not much diversity. You know, we need to get back to integrating small grains, uh, you know, hay, things like that. I, I agree. But again, you talked about legislation. Economically, I've got alfalfa on my acres because I rent my land to a large dairy operator. Uh, if there's not a dairy operator nearby, the person says, why in the hell would I go ahead and grow that? I just uh, don't have a need for it. Or I agree with you. I think there's going to be acres of flax or grain sorghum or a lot of different things that just went away. In my part of the world, it's always been corn and soybeans. The only time people planted wheat was if they were livestock farmers like us and they had to have straw 
or a place to take their manure in the summer, or if they want to do a drainage tile job. What else is going to happen here? What what crops are we going to see? Um, you know, hemp is kind of creeping in. It's still a, an early uh, early adopter, you'd say. Um, but uh, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, diversity as far as being able to, in our area, if um, a double crop system where you can get a wheat crop and a soybean crop, um, there's been some innovation in that. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, it, it is a business. And so the economics of the crops that we have to grow uh, are going to dictate what we grow. Well, putting a cover crop out, as you were just pointing out, if I'm just renting uh, a three-year lease on some some cash-rented ground, I can't justify doing cover crops necessarily. But where there is a long-term is I put in a cover crop because it puts nitrogen in the soil. Uh, it keeps it from blowing away. It improves water infiltration. But I don't see that in the first two years. Yeah, no, chances are you're not. Um, and it's typically, it's it's a two, three, four-year payback. Um and, uh, you know, a lot of guys aren't that patient or, you know, like we've talked about before, don't know that, that they're going to have control of that land. So. When you talk about diversity, you said you have a cover crop on all of your acres. What crops are on your 1,400 acres? Radishes? Uh, yeah, some rye. radishes. Uh, what's that? Rye? rye? Yes, rye. Uh, rye is a big one after corn uh, just because it it's uh, very winter hardy um so it can go in late yeah yep after wheat um i've got a uh 17 way mix um of a lot of different species uh that grows all summer long and then also will overwinter and go into the next spring and what you get out of that you put you got to drive across the acres you've got to do the work and you've got to buy the seed and it's july your wheat has come off you put this in there for what purpose uh, it's got a lot of different purposes. Um, it's to, number one, prime the biological pump because there's lots of different uh, species in there. There's grasses, there's legumes, there's brassicas, there's warm season, there's cool season. Um, and all of those species feed off of each other. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting mix because in different areas of the fields, high ground, low ground, different fields, high fertility, low fertility, um, different species will dominate. So, you know, I can't guess, I don't know, you know, sometimes people ask, well, what's the best cover crop? You know, I don't know. You I just said know. You put in 17 different seeds in your grain drill Yep. and go out there across what was wheat. Do you have to fertilize it? No. Because you're organic, certified organic. So you can't put any synthetic fertilizer. You you could put some manure and stuff, but the legumes in the mix, all this, uh, all these species are going to uh, bring the fertility out of your ground and make it plant available. So that's what's supposed to happen. And then by uh, when you then go in and plant your organically certified crop in the spring, you're going into the stuff that was there all winter. Yep. And it has made the soil more fertilized? Oh, yeah. Yep. It's, uh, it's the you know, if you look at a, a soil test, you know, a soil test only represents a very small amount of the uh, total nutrients in your soil. It only represents what's plant available. So a lot of uh, these type of plants, for instance, buckwheat, uh, can make phosphorus more available. Uh, there's there's a lot of phosphorus, hundreds if not thousands of pounds of phosphorus um, in every acre. It's just not plant available. So crops like buckwheat um, has a very acidic root. It can make that phosphorus more plant available. Okay. So on your acres, you see the soil, you see the, the cover crop as it actually pays itself off. What do you have invested in your cover crop 
with the seed? Now that 17 way mix, um, I've got about $30 an acre just in seed okay. plus the drill pass. And then drill pass uh, is $7 no. an acre? Oh, Purdue says around 15 or so. $15 an acre. Okay. Yep. Plus $15 an acre. All right. So you got 45 bucks in. And that's diesel, everything, and that doesn't give you anything for your time. Yep. So forty-five. No, that's the time included. Okay, so forty-five yep. bucks an acre, you've got invested in that, and you, and you think that you get that and more based on available fertility the following spring. Absolutely, yep. For an organic corn crop, uh, I've found this is the the best way to start out an organic corn. And crop. then you go in there in the spring, and you don't have, you can't spray it. So what do you do? Uh, I will disc it lightly and shallowly. Okay, so, so there's one pass. Uh, usually two, once so, to get it killed, and then once to make it. So now you've got bed. a compaction issue because disc, as they always say, when you want to build a road, you start with a disc. Well, you do if that's on bare soil. See, but I've got 10 tons of organic matter as my buffer. So this is really just chopping. Yep. It's chopping and mixing. Yep. Okay. Then you plant your organic corn. All right. We're talking not just about organic. We're talking about what ag does right, what ag does wrong. We're talking about organic, and we're talking about conventional. Now, if I'm over here in conventional, I'm listening to you. I heard you say something about diversity, and and I'm hearing you loud and clear because I, I believe that there is a big benefit to putting in a bunch more stuff. Can a non-organic person do that? Oh, absolutely. You look at uh, the amount of uh, growth in cover crops uh, in, in just in the conventional ag area in the last few years has been tremendous. Uh, Indiana is actually a leader. I think we might have slipped into second place this past year uh, in the amount of uh, cover crops uh, seeded. All um, right. Another one. Soybeans, corn. You said, well, they're not. They're different because one's a grass and one's a legume. And the other part of it is, you know, we plant them a little differently. We harvest them a little bit, you know, differently, different head, whatever. But they're both annuals. Yep. I just read an article. It's in my book. And dear listener, I have a book about the business of food and agriculture that will be coming out very, very soon. By winter, you will be seeing about it, hearing about this and seeing it. And I want you to buy it because it is a really, really, really interesting book I put together. It's commentary. It's data. It's opinion. It's also a lot of facts about what's happening in the business of food. There's a product called Kernza. It's a perennial wheat. You heard of it? I have heard of it. It's and got it's, a lot of hype. It's got a lot I of hype. I haven't seen it really perform too well in the field. Yeah, and uh, General Mills specifically is a food company that's behind it. And the idea is if we could put out a crop that's a perennial, instead of going out there and doing all this tillage and driving over this ground every spring, we don't have to do that if it's a perennial. Do you see this happening? Cranberries are perennial. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. raspberries are perennial. Yep. The, pro the problem with that is the perennials, uh, you will not get the total production uh, because an annual, all it's concerned about is producing seed for the next year. So the perennial, it wants to be able to be able to survive over the winter, yep. put down roots, uh, store some of that energy. Uh, so it's it's going to be really tough. There's going to be a lot more work on the, the breeding and things like that to make that a success. I, I think you're right. I like the idea that it's uh, it's in the soil. It's deep-rooted. you got the compaction uh, breakup with a deep root. You've got water infiltration improvement because of the deep root. You've got the fact that it's holding the ground. you got the fact that if it's not making you any money because it doesn't produce enough, it's going to be a real yep. problem because we're not doing this for free. Yep, and you still you have the problem even with Kernza you're st it's still a monocrop you still have one species growing out there whereas you know you could do a corn under seeded with you know a rye and a rapeseed and at least you've got three species growing out there uh-huh
So uh, is the future look like that where it's not going to be these clean cornfields that are just, uh, I mean, you know, what the ideal is, there's not one stalk of anything other than corn. There's no weeds. There's no nothing for acres and miles and miles. You look down there, you know what a, the picture looks like. Is that is that yesterday's image? I hope so. Um, I think there's there's a lot of progress moving that way. And I think in the future, economics are probably going to dictate. I don't know what the perfect system is, but it's probably going to be a little bit closer to uh, multi-species with cover crops or something uh, out there as well versus just the, the single monocrops uh, that we've seen in the past. Use of chemicals, your prediction. Now, again, we're, we're not, if you're listening to this saying, he don't know what he's talking about, he's one of those crazy organic guys. No, I see a future with less chemicals, and I'll tell you why. We've already got lawsuits against glyphosate. Now, I defend glyphosate because I was a kid when that stuff came out, and you're talking about miracle juice. It was like penicillin and, and the polio vaccine for me. I'm like, oh, my God, we don't have to walk soybean fields anymore. Oh, you mean I can go and spray around the buildings right now? They, I, they put me in charge of the weed control around there. The stuff was amazing it's not as amazing anymore because it's got some uh some tolerances built up to it but still pretty good stuff we've overused it just like we overused penicillin so is does glyphosate go away i'm afraid that it might and i if it goes away out of the market reasons i could get that or because it's got tolerance problems i get that but if it goes away because of some courtroom in san francisco i don't get that yeah, no, I mean, you've seen uh, local communities have moved to ban it. I don't really see a national ban at all. Um, it's it's still a useful tool. And when you talk about, uh, you know, killing some cover crops, it's probably the best tool that we have for a large number of acres. Um, but at the, at the same time, using, uh, you know, one application of glyphosate to terminate a cover crop versus spraying three or four times, you uh, you know, it, it, it's a lot different use of it. You yeah, know, I, I think that the idea that you have cover crops, that's great. It's good for soil. And then run across it with a sprayer that covers 160 feet at a time. You're not beating up the soil and you're hitting it with what, uh, you know, ounces per acre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but that's common sense and that's logic and that's science. And that's not what plays in the courtroom in San Francisco. Do chemicals... I think chemicals go away because of the public relations. I think because of the lawsuits, because I think after it's glyphosate, there's going to be lawsuits against the next chemical. Oh, absolutely. Because glyphosate is touted as a safe chemical. So that means there are a lot of chemicals out there that aren't as safe. So if, you know, if glyphosate can be banned for safety reasons or just sued to the point where it becomes unprofitable to even be in the business yeah if yep. it's if it's hey we keep having billions of dollars of lawsuits that uh, the juries go against us we can't justify selling it in the yep. united states but the thing is all they would have to do like every other product that's sold in california is say that this product might cause cancer like everything else sold in california does and the lawsuits would go away maybe maybe um, the lawsuits, the lawsuits probably don't go away because there's a lot of profit incentive uh, through the Trial Lawyers Association. Uh, um, use of synthetic fertilizers. Do we use less synthetic fertilizers ten years from now than we do right now? I say yes. Uh, we do, yeah, because uh, like I said, as the science has improved, not just organic. I'm talking the whole business of agriculture, and absolutely. I think it's because it's a cost. And there's also the issue you talked about with algae blooms in Lake Erie, and they're going to say, why are we throwing out fertilizer to cause algae blooms in the lakes? Yeah. I mean, we know, we know we're overusing fertilizer because so much of it's getting away. 
Um, there was an, a new study that came out uh, that said worldwide uh, we're not keeping up with our uh, fertilizer use with our production. And my opinion is that the university recommendations are way too high on the amount of uh, applied nutrients that it takes to grow a bushel of corn or soybeans. You think that the the universities have said that because that's what we've used, not because of what we could actually get by with using. Yeah, yep. Like I said before, we have ignored the biological component of our soil, and that component can turn out a lot of uh, nutrients if uh, we do a few things to help it out and let it work and not just ignore it with large applications of synthetic fertilizer. His name's Andy Ambriel. He's with BioSteward Farms. You can keep up with him on Twitter at BioSteward Farms. That's how I ran across him, even though he knew who I was, because he just lives 10 or 20 miles away from me. We are in the Greenery Beef Office here at De La Rosa Farms, and, you know, it's been a great conversation. But more importantly, it's about time for me to pour myself a draft Coors Banquet. I appreciate you being here, Andy. Last thoughts about what we started off with was uh, organic and conventional. And then I say there's going to be a merging of the two, and you agree with me. What else? Closing thoughts. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen that in um, conventional agriculture's adoption of cover crops and the adoption of uh, more biological-focused treatments and products. Um, and uh, it's, it's really fun to see that that merging um, you know, no way do I think organic is going to become the dominant uh, production system anytime soon. But I really enjoy uh, seeing the different practices adopted um, and seeing different farmers, you know, more focused on their soil and uh, more focused on their, their future productivity. And that's, that's a good thing for the entire industry. It's a good thing for the environment. It's, it's a good, good thing for, those, for everybody. It's a good thing for those operators as well. But are we, we going to get along? I mean, you and I get along, but are, are we going to get along? Oh, I, I like poking fun at, at uh, different people. And you know what the thing is, as farmers, you know, we're all in this together. Um, we don't all do the same thing. We're not always uh, all going to drive the same color tractors, and we're not all going to plant the same kind of seed. And we're not all going to farm the exact same way. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's it's fun. Um, it's nice to... Uh, learn new things. Um, I've, I've learned a lot of things from uh, conventional farmers that are using cover crops that I've adopted to use on my organic farm. Uh, you know, hopefully a conventional farmer might see something I'm doing and adopt it on their farm. Uh, but it's, it's nice to be able to be in a close tight knit community. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's fun to have those little arguments as well. It, it helps us. I think iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens <laughs> iron. That's fantastic. What about the non-GMO verified project? I don't know if that's... Uh, we'll have to talk about the next time. I don't time. know. Do we have time for that no, one? No, <laughs> probably not. All right. His name's Andy Ambriel. You know where to find him. Thank you. My name's Damian Mason. Thanks for being here, buddy. Yep. Thanks right, for having me. It's time me. for us to go and pour a nice cold draft course. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture.